0: Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 28, Provincial Life. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I'm your host, Nick Mashinsky. A couple reminders for you all to start the show. First, get in your questions for the show. Your questions can be anything about what we've covered thus far or about the show itself. And remember, there are no dumb questions. If you're confused about a topic or could use some clarification, please ask. The only thing I ask of you is that you get your questions to me by November 1st, so I have time to research and answer them for our questions and answers episode. The second reminder is to follow the show on social media. We have a Facebook page as well as a Twitter handle at Inca Podcast. And right now I've been retweeting a lot from the Art Institute of Chicago's Art of the Americas. The account is a bot that tweets out photos from their collections and they have pottery, textiles, and more from all the cultures and groups we've focused on. If you have a Twitter, I suggest you follow both accounts so you don't miss a thing. And lastly, we're approaching a national election here in the U.S. So I'm just reminding everyone, go out and vote. So right now, we are in the midst of the Inca rapidly expanding their territory. And I mean rapidly. Tupac Inca Yupanqui has covered a massive amount of ground already and has expanded the empire to nearly its northern extent. And he isn't done we still have a ways to go before Tupac finishes his conquests. Despite this, I think it is a good time to discuss how these new territories and groups were governed. And we'll do this by comparing how two rival groups received vastly different treatment under the Inca. For those worried about a lack of narrative, fear not. There will be plenty in this episode. But that is not all we'll cover either. Because Tupac wasn't just conquering as his army rolled through the Andes from down along the coast. He was also building. Enjoy. Even though we can say for certain that Pachacuti was the Sapa Inca right now, how much power was actually shared between him and his heir is debated. There is this theory that Pachacuti and Tupac actually co-ruled at this point. And perhaps there is some truth to this. While Pachacuti was in charge of the affairs in Cuzco, Tupac was in charge of the war and expansion of the empire. This also means that he was in charge of building as the empire expanded. To quote Rostworowski de Canseco, Although Pachacutec might rightly be considered the rebuilder of Cuzco, Tupac was the initiator of many public works throughout the Inca realm. Let's start with some private works first. Tupac built Calispuquio Huasi, Guayabamba, Urcos, and Inca Huasi, which was built in the image of Cuzco itself. The Chinchero Valley also saw several estates built within it, administrative centers such as Huanco Pampa. Tambo, Colorado, were constructed. And closer to Cuzco, some have claimed that it was actually Tupac that built, or contributed at least, to Sacsayhuaman, the fortress overlooking the city itself. Though we haven't covered his conquest in Koyasuyu just yet, Tupac would see the Sanctuary of the Moon built on the island of Kauati, as well as the Sanctuary of the Sun on the island of Kauaiyo both situated on the sacred Lake Titicaca. Finally, the coastal road of Capacnan was ordered to be built by Tupac, further facilitating the growth of the empire. Of course, these aren't in chronological order, and nor were they the only building projects. As the Inca armies marched over the Andes, other administrative centers and coricanchas were built to facilitate Inca rule and spread the Inca religion. Let's talk about governing in the provinces. In order to collect taxes on the provinces, which came in the form of Mita and goods, individuals were organized similar to the military, namely the decimal system. A group of 10 would answer to an individual, a group of 50 to a higher individual, then 100, 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000. Again, these numbers weren't always exact, but everyone had someone to answer to and the heads of these groups were responsible for collecting that tax or gathering people for me to service. Certain groups were expected to produce certain goods. Highland groups had llamas, contributed wool or meat. Coastal groups might send fish or shells such as the sacred spondylus. Agricultural goods were collected from all over the empire. Many of these goods would find their way into the kolkas for storage. But first they'd be tallied up via the quipu kamayaks, who were the accountants for the empire, keeping track of all the goods on quipus, which were then reported back to the Inca. To keep groups in check, the Inca weren't above taking hostages if they needed to. These hostages would come in the form of local huacas, which would then be transported back to Cuzco, Doing this would force members of the group to travel all the way to Cusco to pay homage to their huaca, coming under the awe of the great city. But not all hostages were huacas. Often siblings or children of the local leaders would be taken to the capital as well. These hostages would get a proper education at Cusco, learning Quechua, to worship Inti, and of course, to obey the Inca lords. But let's dive deeper into the Inca policy that had possibly the largest social impact on those under Inca rule resettlement. Now, the policy of resettlement of groups or troublesome individuals was not invented by the Inca, but like many things, they did perfect the system. Now, the groups or individuals that were resettled were called meatmeys or meatmakuna. These meatmeys were resettled hundreds or thousands of miles away, but in locations that were ecologically similar to their homeland in many cases. The main reason groups were resettled was because they were problematic or posed a threat to the Inca. However, meat maids were created for other reasons as well. The Inca may try to congregate specialists in a certain area to better make use of their resources. Groups favored by the Inca may even be moved to an area nearby to take over fields or improve land that was just conquered. We'll see an example of this between two groups later in the episode. Finally, Meat May would also be sent to the borders to stabilize the area at times and defend the empire from raids. Now when the Meat May settled in a new area, it wasn't like they were on their own. The Inca wanted to make the Meat productive members of the empire, whether the two were former enemies or not. The Inca wanted that production value from that group, so the meatme were supported by the state until they were able to support themselves. But the purpose of moving groups goes far beyond wanting to fill the Colcas. Troublesome groups were sometimes split up entirely. And this was obviously to disrupt the continuity of the people and to disconnect groups from other allies. The meetme would be sent to areas that were a bit underpopulated and at times were surrounded by other groups who were not always friendly to them. This move also separated the meetme from their ancestral lands. Their ancestors were buried at their homelands. They venerated the wakas in the landscape around them. There was a connection there for generations, and with their relocation, that was severed. Now they were forcibly moved far away to a foreign land. Even though the Mitme might be going to prime real estate, it was a big and likely traumatic event for many. We don't know the real extent of how many Meatme were created by the Inca. It is difficult to determine archaeologically. Witness accounts in colonial-era documents, though, have been key in identifying some of the groups that were moved around by the Inca. To quote archaeologist Terence D'Altroy, the Inca policies of using the May when combined with the army and Mita labor requirements altered the social landscape in ways that would have been unimaginable to the indigenous peoples beforehand. Overall, the governing style of the Inca would change given the geographical area as well as the groups involved. For example, coastal groups were never allowed to carry arms once they were under Inca rule. Meanwhile, groups in Koyasuyu were able to carry arms. They were also typically tapped to do masonry work as well. But right now we are going to do something different and actually pick up where we left off in our narrative to give an example of how different groups were treated by the Inca. After defeating the Chimu and installing a puppet ruler, Tupac and his army continued to march south down the coast. They arrived at the city of Pachacamac, a religious center just south of modern-day Lima. The center submitted to the Inca and received quite a bit of autonomy, though this was more because there was a strong cult around the area, that the Inca could not simply seem to sway over to worshipping Inti. And I should mention that the waka for Pachacamac is over seven feet tall and has somehow survived to this day, though it is no longer at its longtime home. A picture, of course, is up on the website ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com. After bringing Pachacamac into the Inca sphere, Tupac headed east through the snowy mountain passes of Pariacaca, got back onto the road, and marched to Cusco, where he celebrated his latest victories. Now, Pachacamac is not the group I wanted to focus on, not because it's not important. It is. As I said, the site was a powerful religious center, powerful enough that the Inca allowed them to worship their main deity instead of Inti. However, we needed to bring them up to get to the next two groups, the Chincha and the Warco. After celebrating his triumphs in Cusco, Tupac set out once again, but headed southeast, towards Nazca. Remember the various Nazca groups fractured at the arrival of the Wari, and it seems like they never really coalesced after Wari power waned in the region. So when Tupac reached the deserts of Nazca, it was fairly easy for the Inca army to subdue any groups that resisted. Now instead of heading south, Tupac headed north along the coast towards Pachacamac to fill in the gap that now existed. During the march north, the Inca encountered the Chincha, just north of the Pisco Valley. We are unsure if this was their first encounter or not. They may have been first contacted by Capac Yupanqui, Pachacuti's brother but this contact would have resulted in some gift-giving and perhaps keeping some mamacona within the Chincha territory. Yet, some sources say that this is the first time the Inca and the Chincha had come across one another, though no doubt they had certainly heard of one another. The Chincha were ready to resist at first, but they did listen to Tupac's messengers, considered their offer, submit to Inca rule, worship Inti, provide Mita, and decided to peacefully submit. Tupac immediately went to work in the area, building a proper administrative center as well as the roads. He also built Inca Huasi, another estate, which I had mentioned earlier, and fort that was built in the image of Cusco. And you can view pictures of this estate and other pictures as well, then you can view a picture of this estate, as well as a map of Tupac's path, on the website. But Tupac wasn't done building there. He built Lima, La Vieja, and Tambo, Colorado, in the Pisco Valley as well, just to the south. So what did the Chincha get in return? Well, for the peaceful submission, the Chincha were viewed upon favorably by the Inca, so favorably that they actually received trading privileges that the Chimu were forced to relinquish after they were conquered. This meant that the Chincha could now trade with the Ecuadorian coastal groups for spondylus and other exotic goods. After his building projects, or quite possibly as they were going on, Tupac Inkyupanke and his army continued north along the coast and met the Warco in the Canete Valley. The Warco had a string of fortified positions that protected them against their neighbors, including their rivals, the Chincha. It isn't expressed anywhere in the sources, but given the Inca's desire to have groups submit rather than resist, we can imagine that the Inca offered peaceful terms to the Warco if they simply supplied the Inca with Mita, troops, and accepted Inti into their religion. However, whatever the peace terms were, The Warko refused them, and trusted their fortified positions in resisting the Inca. And did they ever resist? The Warko actually resisted the Inca for years. In fact, Tupac had to call off the campaign a few times. The severe sweltering heat of the coast caused the highland dwellers to suffer and become sick more often than once, and thus Tupac would retreat his army into the highlands for his troops to recover. When it became apparent that brute force wouldn't do the trick, the Inca resorted to cunning. Mama Okyo, who if you don't remember was Tupac's principal wife, sent an emissary to the Warco, claiming that the Inca wished to leave the Warko alone. With this good news in hand, the Warko went to celebrate a ceremony in honor of the sea to ensure peace. It is said that the entire population of the valley embarked onto rafts playing music to celebrate. Meanwhile, the Inca swooped into the valley and captured it. Now, the Huarco were likely never actually called the Huarco, at least prior to the Inca arriving. And this is because the name Huarco was given to them to reflect the punishment doled out to some of the inhabitants, who were hung from the walls of the very fortifications that had once protected them. Afterwards, Mitme were brought in from the Moche Valley, inhabitants of the former Chimor Empire, and once again the Chincha benefited from their warm relations with the Inca, gaining prime farm ground to cultivate at the expense of their rivals. The tale of the Chincha and the Warco is a prime example of how the Inca rewarded those who submitted to their rule and punished those who didn't. The stiffer the resistance, often the harsher the punishment, while those who submitted would have to make certain concessions, but they were able to keep their lands and their status. However, life could become difficult, even for those who submitted willingly to the Inca. Anthropologist Thomas C. Patterson suggests groups became fully integrated in the following sequence. Garrison, alliance, trade administration shifting, specialization, and finally, encapsulation. I personally find Patterson highly critical of Inca rule and society in general, but he isn't necessarily wrong either. Given what Tupac had done, the Chincha were already in the administration shifting phase. They would soon become specialists that would dedicate their craft or goods to the state before being completely under the Inca thumb. Points made by ethno-historian Maria Roswarwalski de Canseco seem to support Patterson's observations. Canseco points out that the Inca demands on lords from various groups only increased as time went on, stretching some groups to their breaking points. We already discussed the consequences of the meat made that were moved around, but groups that submitted also had to commit their share of troops to the army an army that marched to faraway lands taking fit men away from the group, thus creating stress on the AUs who would have to pick up the slack while those men were away, creating even more stress on the AU system when they didn't come back. I'm jumping ahead a bit, but Tupac's heir would later return to the Chincha and order more lands handed over to the state, additional women and Yanukona, a class of servants for himself and for Inti. Each time, the demands of the Inca would increase on these groups, and every time the Inca would return stronger than before. The presence of an imposing army was also worrisome to some local cinchi. If they resisted and were to lose, which was likely given that they'd often be outnumbered, they would surely be replaced and the group treated more harshly. Despite odds, though, some groups did rebel. But there were many that accepted the Incas' increasingly taxing demands and lived with it. The Chincha would be one such group. In fact, their leader would fall to the Spanish, Ecajamarca, Cajamarca, at the side of the Sapa Inca. But now I'm really jumping ahead. So next time... We'll talk about the current Sapa Inca, Pachacuti, and say goodbye.